0: Hello, my name is Ari Redboard. Welcome to TRM Talks. TRM Talks is brought to you by TRM Labs, the leading provider of blockchain intelligence and anti-money laundering software. We have a really, truly expert panel today to talk crypto and sanctions. Uh, There is so much that has been going on in this space, um, you know, over the course of the last really month or so. You have the uh, designation of tornado cash, uh, enforcement actions against Bittrex, um, and, and so many other sort of things that are happening in the space. Um, when, when I think about this, I sort of look back to October 2021 guidance about a, you know, about a year ago. Uh, OFAC put out very specific guidance sort of packaged uh, for the crypto industry. And it really focused on, all right, what do, what do the enforcement actions say? Uh, what do sanctions actually mean? What are the programs? But then also sort of what are the tools? You know, tools like TRM for blockchain intelligence, uh, tools like GeoComply for geolocation, um, to, to sort of to, 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 to for best practices in the, in the sanction space. Um, so, we put together a TRM talks really to talk about um, how OFAC is thinking about sanctions and how the industry uh, is thinking about sanctions compliance. So, really, really excited um, and, and want to jump right into the conversation here today. Uh, just a couple quick housekeeping things uh, check out the handouts tab. Uh, the handouts tab is always awesome. I think it's particularly awesome today. Um, and it's just really great sort of reading adjacent to this conversation. Uh, there's a piece by TRM and GeoComply for ACAMS on exactly this, right? How do you use blockchain intelligence and geolocation to meet your uh, OFAC compliance uh, obligations? Um, I always say, and you should keep, you should do this if you haven't already subscribed to the weekly roundup. Uh, it is awesome. And hopefully we'll give you all the crypto knowledge you need uh, for any given week um, and really continue to sort of subscribe Uh, Follow us on social media to know kind of what's coming up next. Uh, We are doing an unprecedented number of TRM talks uh, over the course of the next uh, uh, month or so and really want you to tune into um, all of those. So listen, without further ado, I really do have an incredibly uh, extraordinary panel here today. Uh, Dallas Woodrum from OFAC, Isabella Edmonds from GeoComply, and Eric Lorber from PwC. Uh, Before we dive into sort of uh, the real nuts and bolts of all of this, uh, I would love to hear a little bit about your backgrounds and, and really journeys to this space. You each are doing sort of really unique things in crypto today. Uh, Dallas, why don't I kick things off with you?
1: Great. Thank you so much uh, for having me here. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, really excited about this uh, discussion. Um, just a little bit of background on myself. Um, again, my name is Dallas Woodrum. I'm a section chief in the enforcement division at OFAC. Um, this is the division that, um, that looks into apparent violations of US sanctions, including through the use of virtual currency, investigates them, and in certain instances, brings civil penalties um, for uh, violations of our sanctions programs. Um, In terms of cryptocurrency and how I got into this space, um, so prior to working at OFAC, I was uh, a lawyer in private practice at a big law firm here in DC for eight years. working on sanctions and export controls from really every sector um, that you could think of. Um, I would say that you know, at the sort of the end of my career um, at the law firm, we dealt more and more with virtual currency issues coming up. Um, so that was sort of my first foray into it. Um, it brought interesting questions from a lawyer's perspective on how sanctions apply to this new nascent area of emerging technology um, and i would say you know even more today with um, the rise of DeFi, rise of um, nfts and other areas of digital assets They go beyond just normal virtual currency there's all kinds of compliance um issues that that come up and it's a very interesting area to be in um, i recently joined OFAC just um in february uh so basically Uh, a week or two before russia invaded um, eastern ukraine so i was thrown in very quickly into a lot of enforcement issues in that area um, and in particularly related to virtual currency Um, one of my first um, first projects here was issuing helping issue an faq that made clear that our sanctions against russia um, apply equally to Transactions involving virtual currency as they would with other transactions involving the US dollar or other fiat currency. Um, and so from there, um, I've been kind of delving further into uh, our virtual currency team, uh, our interagency team working on these issues, um, making sure that we disrupt the use of virtual currency um, when it's used to violate our economic sanctions or evade our sanctions.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, it's really extraordinary to see what's been going on in the crypto sanction space from OFAC's perspective over the last, you know, really since your time there, right? You know, you mentioned Russia. Uh, there's this been this narrative about whether or not Russia can use crypto to evade sanctions. We saw these designations against Russian paramilitary groups. I, I previewed sort of Tornado Cash and, and, and Bittrex. I mean, literally like every day. And I think that's why it's just so important to have these conversations. One really quick thing that I forgot to mention, and that is we do have a question and answer tab. Uh, here. So please, folks, uh, put your questions in and we will do our best to get those answered throughout the show. Uh, Isabella, uh, we'd love to hear a little bit about your journey to uh, to this space and, and what you're doing today.
2: Yeah, definitely. That. Thank you. First, thank you so much, Aria and TRM for having us. This is a really exciting conversation to be having now. Um, but again, my name is Isabella Edmonds. I work at GeoComply. I, I do government relations within the crypto and fintech. So talking to regulators, tracking crypto and fintech regulations around the world, which is really exciting time right now. How I got into this, it was really when I started at GeoComply. And GeoComply, at the time when I started, hadn't really been involved in the crypto and fintech space. As a matter of fact, my first project was on payments, just to explore different verticals than we were originally in. And crypto hadn't really made mass media or, or regulator headlines at that point. And slowly as as the years went by and I was exploring how geolocation could help the financial services industry, uh, crypto did start to make an entry. And I'm a little bit of a nerd. So when I started learning about it, learning about blockchain. It was just so fascinating. And I've really kind of specialized now in this like crypto plus geolocation and sanctions and of the jurisdictional aspects of um, transacting online uh, and, and virtual currencies. So it's been really exciting. And, and again, super excited for this panel.
0: Isabella, thank you so much for that. And um, I think what, what, what folks... Um, I think i think most folks understand but you know geolocation is sort of where you are in the world becomes particularly important in this ofac context right like this isn't just anti-money laundering but it is so important where you're located in the world when it comes to sanctions because we have sanctioned we have jurisdictions and, and dallas will get in a little bit i know into sort of what these different programs look like but we have entire jurisdictions that are sanctioned right iran or north korea uh sudan And it's so important that you have tools to understand where people exist. One flag for folks uh, on the uh, IT side of this uh, today, I'm being told that the chat is or the question answer is disabled uh, for participants or for folks who are uh, tuning in. So if we can try to get that problem solved, that would be awesome because I want your questions today. Uh, Eric, uh, I, I think you're pretty you're becoming more and more well known on trm talks i think we're gonna have to change your business card to eric lorber trm talks guest um but i am and and before i get to you though i am seeing that it seems like this issue is fixed because i did just get a question in the chat so uh eric uh what what, what's the story here tell us a little bit about yourself thanks eric and i'll just say um it's great to be back
3: Uh, i will notice that question in the chat it's a great question love love that one so we'll definitely get to that um it's great to be here with everybody um I'm Eric Florber. I'm a partner in the Financial Crimes Unit at PwC. I'm our sanctions regulatory lead. And kind of like Dallas, um, my journey to crypto didn't start out um, with crypto. It started out with traditional sanctions compliance. So I, I likewise am a lawyer by training and spent a bunch of years doing sanctions compliance advisory, primarily for corporates and big financial institutions. Uh, and then I went to Treasury and I remember at Treasury, one of the first project I, projects I worked on was BTCE, um, which wasn't a sanctions issue per se, it was a money laundering uh, uh, case, but still sort of opened my eyes and said, Well, I wonder what this is all about. But even during that time, crypto wasn't a huge focus of our work at Treasury. I mean, I remember in, I think it was 2018, the executive order that sanctioned the Venezuelan Petro uh, that I had the opportunity to work on. It's sort of a wow, what's actually going to happen with this? Is this a real means to evade sanctions? What are we worried about here? And of course, the Petro didn't really, so far anyway, amount to much. Um, But when I left Treasury and came back into the private sector, um, you know, a lot of my clients remain and, you know, remained at the time to be traditional financial institutions. But at the same time, I was getting all sorts of questions from folks in, you know, sort of crypto natives saying, hey, we want to figure out how to comply. What do we do? What, what steps do we need to take? What types of programs do we need to put into place? And, you know, if anyone who knows me, I'm sure I've got friends uh, on uh, listening and hopefully know that I'm sort of a, a consulting nerd in that I like to help people address sort of the real challenges that they have the regulatory challenges that they have. So it pres- provided this really interesting opportunity to sort of work with companies that needed help and needed to figure out how they, you know, what to do to, to comply. So that was my initial journey. Um, and I will say that, you know, now, My current client base that focuses on crypto, yeah, I work with crypto natives. Yeah, I work with exchanges. But the other types of entities we do a good amount of work with are actually the traditional financial institutions who are now interested in crypto and are working in crypto. So sort of bridging those three different areas has been really uh, a great experience over the last year or so.
0: Cool. I feel like we're like a little bit of revenge of the nerds because now I've heard nerd mentioned twice on TRM Talks, which is is pretty cool. Uh, But I guess that's what we kind of all are at heart here. Uh, Dallas, I'm going to kick things off with you. Look, uh, literally exactly a year ago, uh, Lauren Shiner, who is the um, Director of Compliance and Enforcement at OFAC, came on to literally talk about this guidance that we're about to talk about in a moment, the October 21 guidance, which really was was, was an amalgamation of everything that OFAC had done before in the crypto space and to, to really ship to the crypto industry. And it was really helpful, I think, coming on and speaking directly to industry folks. We now have sort of a year... Of hindsight and sort of more on that. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about really that guidance, but then really use it as a jumping off point to the way OFAC is thinking about sort of compliance in the space today?
1: Sure thing. Um, So yeah, in October 2021, our our counterparts over in the compliance division um, published this uh, guidance. There were some FAQs prior to it about virtual currency, but this meant, this was meant to be a one-stop sort of resource on how to design a compliance program in the virtual currency area. And it does really several things. Um, First, um, I think it really reemphasizes the message that we've been saying, which is that our sanctions compliance obligations apply equally to transactions involving virtual currency as they do with fiat currency. And that's something that, um, you know, kind of underpins our, our virtual currency sanctions enforcement. Um, and second, as I said earlier, it's a, it's a consolidated resource for the industry to help navigate and comply with our sanctions programs and design risk-based compliance programs. And I think importantly, it highlights some really some good best practices that we've seen in the virtual currency industry, um, as well as practices that we've not seen in some of the violations that have happened. Um, so, for instance, some of the best practices we've Discuss, which I think will be a real topic of today, is incorporating geolocation, IP address blocking controls um, to block persons who are in comprehensively sanctioned jurisdictions. So that includes Iran, North Korea, Syria, Crimea, and then the Luhansk and Donetsk regions um, of eastern Ukraine. Um, In addition to the traditional IP blocking, um, the the guidance also emphasizes the need for um, using other information that may be available, such as domain names and email addresses or um, country and address indicators that people may collect in drop down menus, for example, um, to also screen out um, persons from comprehensively sanctioned jurisdictions. Um, and one other sort of best practice is sort of. Um, you know, pertinent for this discussion is the use of transaction monitoring and investigation uh, software, um, including blockchain analytics to identify transactions that could involve sanctioned persons or other sanctioned jurisdictions. There's a lot in here in the brochure. um, And, you know, all those tools may not be applicable to a particular entity, but it's kind of there to show what we've been looking at in terms of best practices and provides a guide for the industry at large to incorporate what makes sense based on their risk-based approach
0: R- really helpful and we're going to get back to pretty much every one of those different sort of areas that you mentioned from enforcement actions to tools um isabella you heard dallas talk a little bit about sort of you know geolocation and the importance of understanding sort of where uh transactions are coming from uh would you talk a little bit about sort of what GeoComply does, Um and and I think there's a we may get a little bit more into the nuts and bolts. There's a great question in the chat already about how do you identify VPNs versus geolocation. Um let, let's start like let's dig in a little bit to how you got how how your tool works and, and go from there.
2: Yeah, definitely. And and this is a question that I get a lot too, with a lot of, you know, jargon being used, geolocation, IP address, VPNs. It, it can it can get a little murky, but I'm gonna take a take a step back and and throw in some MythBusters too. A lot of the times when I talk to industry, you know, and I and I tell them about GeoComply, and I say, you know, we do geolocation. The first um, answer that that I'll get back is like, oh, you do IP address checks, and and IP address has kind of become synonymous with geolocation. And actually, in, in reality, there are many ways that you can geolocate someone. There are several different geolocation data points. And these include GPS coordinates, Wi-Fi triangulation, cell tellular data, and, and IP address as well, of course. But IP address, and many of you may know this, it's, it's very easily spoofed. Um, you have all of these different tools that can manipulate your IP address to make it seem somewhere that you're not. And these include VPNs, proxies, Tor exit nodes, for example. Um, but the the financial industry, you know, at large really like the standard has been relying on IP address, which you know becomes problematic for 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 the reasons I've mentioned. And as well, it, it's very inaccurate when it comes to to its actual like accuracy ranges. And something that that I found out about, just to explain how outdated this technology is, IP address was actually deployed, first deployed in the 1980s. And Apple came out with their first iPhone uh, that had GPS on it in 2008. So we're kind of relying on, you know, 1980s technology for a 21st century problem which is like how do you create virtual borders and geofence um, jurisdictions where you are not allowed to operate whether that's because it's a sanctioned country or because um, you don't you're not licensed there, for example. So it it really and, and Ari this is like as you mentioned earlier, the question of where especially in the digital world now that we're onboarding and there's so many amazing technology, and tools where, you know, financial tools are just available across the world. And it's such an amazing opportunity, but the where of the KYC and the customer due diligence becomes so important because your, your location at any given time, when you're interacting online is part of your digital identity. And it tells a story about a user, you know, the patterns, the behaviors, you know, if that, if that account appears somewhere somewhere where that user has never been before, and it's associated with a different device. It, they're all really important data points to be collecting. And in back to the sanctions compliance piece, it's, it's an essential part, right, of KYC, of your customer due diligence, of your ongoing monitoring. But the geolocation part doesn't only enforce your, your sanctions compliance, like a lot of the other risks, it's your anti-money laundering. Where are these transactions coming from? Are they from high-risk jurisdictions? Um, And uh, also to inform your risk-based approach, uh, for example. And one of the big risk flag indicators is when somebody is trying to spoof or manipulate their coordinates, for example, beyond just a VPN and and manipulating your IP address, there's actually software and hardware that you can download to change your coordinates and to change the Wi-Fi networks around you to make it seem you're somewhere where you're not. And because IP address uh, data has been around for so long as a form of geolocation, fraudsters and, and cyber criminals around the world have figured out and basically have it down uh, to how they're going to obfuscate your location. And if you're a good fraudster, you're trying to circumvent you know, restrictions, your first line of defense, you're not going to lead law enforcement to your door and tell them where you are. You're going to hide and anonymize that part of your identity online, especially if you're not doing... Um, if you're, if you're, uh, undertaking, you know, any kind of illicit activity. That, and I know that, there might be a lot of questions ar- around that too. No, and I
0: love that. I think this is going to be a jumping off point because I'm going to dig into each of those. And what I think I want to hear from you in a moment uh-huh. is going to really be, um, how are compliance officers today doing that? Like, what is the nuts and bolts of, 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 of that activity and sort of how they're using the tool, um, you know, fr- from a compliance perspective, um, some really good questions coming in. Um, and, uh. One, one around unhosted wallets and how sort of we are, how we gain sort of information related to that in terms of sanctions exposure. Um, but, but before we do that um, Dallas, you know, people ask me all the time, sort of like, how do you get smart? How do you, what, what should I be looking at in this space to really understand what, how regulators are thinking? And I always say enforcement actions um, because to me, enforce, usually enforcement actions, a come out before guidance, right? The guidance is an explanation of why essentially in many respects, a regulator took an enforcement action. Uh, Cause these are our expectations now. Um, And there have really been a series of enforcement actions over the last couple of years. I sort of call them the BIT cases. I think there's this OFAC case law developing around, you know, uh, BitPay, uh, Bittrex, and and BitGo. Uh, But it's really a lot of it is the same expectation. Uh, And that is that these are using tools. Can you talk us through sort of how OFAC thinks about enforcement actions? And maybe uh, if you could dig into Bittrex a little bit. Um, It was the largest ever enforcement action against a crypto Uh, business, I think it really helps sort of understand OFAC's expectations.
1: Yeah, I think really a lot of the enforcement actions we've taken really demonstrate what happens when you don't implement the compliance best practices and procedures that we've outlined in our um, virtual currency guidance. Uh, And I think Bitrex is a pretty good example of that. Um, And so just to give a little context on that particular case, Um, Just a few weeks ago, our compliance division brought um, the largest enforcement penalty case on a virtual currency firm to date, um, Bitrex, which was uh, a $24 million settlement. Um, What basically happened in this case is that Bitrex, which is a U.S. uh, virtual currency exchange, um, it started operations in March 2014, but didn't really have a sanctions compliance program until February 2016, so almost two years later. Um, and when the company finally did implement a sanctions compliance program, it only initially screened for hits on our specially designated nationals and blocked persons lists. They didn't screen for customers from sanctioned jurisdictions such as Iran, Syria, Cuba, Crimea, and Sudan. Um, Sudan was comprehensively sanctioned at the time and currently is not. Um, And they failed to do this even though they had IP addresses and other information identifying um, these sanctioned jurisdictions. And so basically this resulted in thousands of violations that could have easily been caught um, had effective controls been put in place. And I think it really kind of shows two major takeaways that we've seen in other cases um, in the past few years as well, that number one, compliance really needs to be baked in at at the development phase of new products like it's not an afterthought it's something that should be um considered analyzed and implemented at the develop product development phase when it whether it comes from virtual currency or any other emerging technologies compliance is an important part in the business development process for that product and i think too you know what this case also demonstrates too is that it's not enough just to to know your customers, um, but also where your customers are, um, including um, using geocache location tools and other information that may be available to identify where they're from.
0: Terrific. Yeah, no. Uh, th- thank you for that. Um, it it, see, it does seem that there are there's a lot of consistencies between the cases that are being brought here. and. Um, You know, I've often said that when I was a prosecutor, uh, you know, you were not allowed to send a message, right? If you said that, you had an automatic mistrial, if you ever said that to the jury. But it's really the opposite when it comes to regulators. You know, you're taking action to really send a message to the industry. And it seems like that message is sort of what's in the guidance now. And that is, you really have to have these tools in place in order to mitigate risk. Um, Eric, let's take sort of all of what has been said, right? Um, What you're doing really is you're taking the information from OFAC, Uh, And you are advising clients in the space uh, as they are saying, hey, how do I build a sanctions compliance program, an AML sanctions program? Can you talk about how you're using this information to advise clients? And maybe honestly, like I think what would be most helpful here is like a little free advice, as much as I know you hate to give it uh, to like the folks in the crypto industry on the line about like, what you would recommend or sort of best practices to clients today.
3: Yeah, no, definitely. Thanks, Eric. Um, but before I jump into that, and I totally will. If I could just piggyback off of what Thanks. Dallas said and your, your comments about the enforcement actions, I think you're exactly right that enforcement actions in many ways are are lessons to be learned. Um, and the other thing I would mention um, about enforcement actions, particularly the ones that we've seen in the, in the crypto space over the last few years, is in some ways they mirror um, some of the issues that finan- traditional financial institutions had you know, in the last decade, right? So you look at, you know, many of the the, the three that you mentioned, it's essentially all not these exact same fact pattern, but it's an issue where they have information um, available to them, and they are essentially not screening that information, right? Citibank got hit a couple of years ago, I think it was about seven or eight years ago, for having documentation, trade finance documentation in their, uh, in their, you know, that they were holding and they weren't screening the underlying documents. It was the exact, not the exact same fact pattern, but it's a similar fact pattern whereby if you look at you know, some of the prior bank enforcement actions that have taken place, you see sort of rhymes and mirrors. And so I, one thing I do counsel my clients on, particularly in the crypto space, when they're thinking about, well, what do we need to do in terms of setting up a program? I say, well, one important thing to do is look back um, at you know, some recent enforcement actions even to institutions that you may not think are the same types of institutions because there are good lessons to be learned there. So that's, that's kind of the point one. Second point in, in response to your um, specific question. Yeah, um, lot, lots of free advice to be given on this. It d- kind of depends on the type of institution that you are um, in the crypto space. And I sort of break it into three different categories. Right. So for the crypto natives, Um, and here thinking of, you know, sort of more of the startup style flavor crypto companies, I really advocate a crawl, walk, run approach to setting up a sanctions compliance program. Because oftentimes what we see when people come to us is essentially, listen, we want to put into place a compliance program, but we aren't going to be able to put into place a full-fledged program that has internal testing and, you know, compliance testing and auditing and everything from, you know, day one. It's just not feasible for us. And you know, we're not going to be able to put in place a 20-person compliance team. We have two people who are working compliance, one of whom is also the general counsel, right? So you have to do, to a certain extent, a crawl, walk, run approach. But with that being said, there are certain initial elements that I think really do fall into that crawl space that you really do need to put into place, right? And so, for example, here I would say some type of governance and decisioning structure that needs to be there some type of transaction monitoring or screening system or tool so that you can at least detect potential SDN involvement or comprehensively sanctioned jurisdiction uh, uh, involvement some type of at least initial training program so that the people who for example are looking at alerts know what they're looking for uh, and looking at so really this kind of for crypto natives you know, this initial step. And then as you get further into your maturity, you can add things like a compliance testing program, an internal audit program, so on and so forth. Um, so that's sort of the way that I usually counsel my, my crypto clients, uh, the native crypto clients. The second category um, really are the, you know, traditional financial institutions that are engaging in, you know, custody and, and other types of activities with Um, you know, within the crypto ecosystem. And they've got a different set of challenges and a different set of needs. And one of the biggest challenges that they face as far as I've seen that we try to help them with is essentially how do you incorporate things like blockchain analytics tools, but also risk rating for crypto into your existing governance structures, right? So for example, one challenge we always see is, okay, we've got this client um, who's got this particular type of crypto exposure how are we risk rating this client, and where does this fall into our CDD EDD process? And you know, how are we? You know, what, what types of questions are we asking to uh, Isabella's point from earlier uh, during KYC onboarding or KYC refresh? So there's this real need to think about you know when you're onboarding crypto clients, how you flow those risks through the you know the all elements of your governance structure, because that's really what your you know what your bank is set up to to do. And then finally, third, and I know I'm going on for a little while, so I apologize for that. Third are are the exchanges. Um, And here, the reason I sort of bucket them as a different category is in my mind, they fall somewhere in between sort of the kind of initial new crypto natives and the traditional financial institutions, because they do have more mature programs usually in place. But some of the biggest challenges they face are actually just sort of defining what their risk appetites are. So basically saying, okay, you know, tornado cash was designated. What does that mean for transactions where for hops away or whatever you want to use, there was a touch point to a tornado cash and really envisioning what those risk appetites are. Um, in addition to the other requirements, obviously, that a traditional financial institution um, or, or elements of a program that, for example, a traditional financial institution will have. So, again, sort of bucket it into three different categories. And my advice varies based on you know, which category we're talking about.
0: That's uh, no, super helpful, and I, you know I would have cut you off if I, uh, if I was done with you there. I think that was, uh, that, that w- that was really helpful um, guidance. I, I know I'm the moderator, uh, but I do love to jump in here. Uh, there are a couple of questions that I think I might be able to help with in the chat. Uh, one sort of around unhosted wallets, and Isabella, you can sort of feel free to jump in here as well. Look, uh, you know, part, of the, part of what OFAC's expectations is that you're using blockchain intelligence tools today like TRM. And quite frankly we're able to we have as much sort of granular data on this idea of self-hosted wallets as we do on um you know wallets that are connected to exchanges so we understand sort of hey is that wallet potentially connected with some type of illicit activity uh is it on the sdn list uh is that wallet um does that wallet have sanctions exposure secondary exposure so what we're able to do today at trm is provide really granular data to whether it's a large exchange or a small DeFi protocol as to what the risk category is that they're going to, in terms of a wallet address, hosted or unhosted, um, that, that, uh, that you are going to, uh, that you're going to ultimately transact with. And I think that's, the, that's really why uh, OFAC wants to ensure that these, the, that these tools are in place. So you just have a good sense. And that, that doesn't matter if it's a personal wallet uh, or an unhosted wallet or whether it's a uh, wallet that's connected to exchange. Uh, There's another really, like a really interesting question um, that I think is slightly outside of the scope, but it's around- Can I just add on real quick? Go ahead, yep, yeah. Just real, you know, one
1: thing thing we've been trying to emphasize too with some of our recent SDN designations is including additional wallet addresses so that blockchain analytics can identify perhaps other, um, using, you know, different approaches like co-spending or other patterns of, transactions to identify um, other wallets that may be owned or controlled by the same sanctioned person. So
0: it's a great point. Would you, would that you build, Yeah, that's awesome. Would you build on that a little bit, actually? Like, so um, obviously, you know, OFAC has been putting wallet addresses on uh, the list for some time. Obviously, it's helpful, very, very helpful to blockchain intelligence companies like TRM because we can then surface that data in our tool uh, and then sort of extrapolate, right, to understand like, all right, well, who are those wallet addresses transacting with? what 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 is the expectation today in terms of crypto businesses what like you know given that that technology exists what is the expectation from OFAC in terms of using that information
1: yeah i mean i don't know if we you know have a per se guidance on specifically how to sure. how to use blockchain analytics on that but i would say that what what that information does is it does provide an additional tool for people in the vc area um to identify, you know, maybe you have a wallet address that is doing a lot of transactions with that other wallet address. And there may be certain types of patterns of transactions that identify um, that other wallet address as maybe being a risky wallet that um, belongs to the sanctioned person. Um, and so what I think the, the, the purpose of providing that is to promote compliance and to ensure um, that, you know, if you have analytics, if you have the ability to do so, um, or if you have reason to know that there's sort of transactions that are happening on your platform with that wallet, that you may want to employ a risk-based approach and um, and interdict those transactions or um, find more about that wallet.
0: Really helpful. Um, so, yeah, just, just trying to answer one of the questions in here. With maybe some sort of unique perspective, there's a question on whether or not you can get information from a phone carrier in terms of location. And what's interesting is, like, what I often talk about is, like, this whole thing's a toolbox, right? Regulators, Dallas has a toolbox, law enforcement has a toolbox. And while, you know, TRM and geocomply and these tools are very powerful, they really are just a couple of tools within a larger toolbox. You know, when I was a prosecutor, we would get this information all the time. We would ask the court to issue what we call the 2703D order uh, to a phone carrier to give us information related to where that phone was pinging or where that phone is located. Um, and, uh, you know, so when you're doing a criminal investigation, there are ways that a court can get you that information. I know in Dallas, you can speak to this. OFAC worked very closely with the department of justice and really across the interagency as they're sort of trying to understand, uh, these issues. So like there are so many different tools here, um, that, you know, the, 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 you know, Maybe you can't get this through blockchain analytics or through geolocation, but there are other ways to sort of do that through the courts, through legal process. Anybody have anything to add to that? I know it's way outside the scope here, but since I had an answer, I thought I would give it.
2: Well, I I actually, I just wanted to add to that um, because some of the technology now is like on the device level. So instead of maybe going to the solution provider that's embedded in terms of like the, the fraud solution, the compliance solution, and then you could get the information there as well.
0: Just that, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that, 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 that's really helpful too. Um, going back a little bit, sort of Isabella, just I, I think sort of building off of that, I think you started to dig into sort of how you know what you do, what the tool does, right if you could get, walk me through a little bit more of sort of the nuts and bolts, right? Like you have these enforcement actions, OFAC has end guidance. OFAC said, this is the expectation. If I'm a compliance officer listening to this today, how should they be, or are they using a geolocation tool?
2: Yeah, definitely. That's a great question. And again, just like adding on to a lot of what like Dallas and Eric have said on the enforcement action trends, um, just like what what the issues kind of like reflecting what the issues are and and where the gaps are and and what in entities and industries need to be looking at um to make sure that these risks are mitigated and these compliance gaps are filled so like really really interesting on that but i think like you know as we were saying the the last the, the most recent enforcement actions really highlight the importance of jurisdictional sanctions compliance. So again, like knowing where that transaction is really coming from, where that user is originally from. And one thing that I wanted to talk about and and go a little bit deeper into the enforcement actions. So as, as Dallas mentioned a lot, the enforcement actions were saying, you know, the IP address, the IP address noted that the user was located in Syria, in North Korea. Um, but I I think this is just the tip of the iceberg, because if you're only collecting IP address data, which as I mentioned before is inaccurate and spoofable, then you're, you kind of like, you don't know what you don't know. So really like for me, the key takeaway too, with this was like, your insights will only be as accurate and high quality as the data you are using to inform your decision. So So I I think on my end, making sure that the data that that you are collecting for compliance for fraud purposes is high quality data. And when you're relying on IP address, it just simply creates a a quite wide compliance gap. And and I'll go a little bit into more, Ari, on on your question on how this is used. So GeoComply collects multi-source geolocation is what we call it. And it's all these different uh, data points that i mentioned again gps wi-fi triangulation even ip address because it's it's also a really good way to know um, you know if somebody is trying to use a vpn to it does tell you um and, and inform all of these risk-based decisions but we're also looking again we're getting all this geolocation data but has somebody manipulated it again I, I mentioned before, all these ways that there are to manipulate it. So so bringing these two together and how it really manifests for a lot, of, you know, because of OFAC's guidance and, and the recent enforcement actions, a lot of the questions that I get and, and that GeoComply gets is how do we make sure that we're, we're not allowing any transactions coming from these sanctions jurisdictions and really what GeoComply is able to do with, with um, collecting this very accurate geolocation data, is create these virtual borders or, or geofences, right? So that you're able to geofence these jurisdictions in a very pinpoint accurate way. And a really excellent example of this is, you know, this was mentioned before, like Crimea and the Lancet-Donesque regions. These are regions within a whole country. If you're a crypto exchange or, or really any fintech or, or P2P or, or financial service, and you offer offer a service online, whether that's an app or it's website-based where users can interact, and that you're operating in Ukraine, for example, you might be thinking, I'm at a really, placing myself at a really big risk because how am I going to be able to tell if this person is within Crimea or or the Lans and Donetsk regions? And you can only really do that with, of uh, an accuracy range of down to meters, right? Where if you're on one side of the border you, that you're, let's say you're somewhere near the and S regions and you're on one side of the border and that location data is telling you that they're there. And as soon as you cross that virtual border into that sanctioned jurisdiction, you can block those. So really like, again, the accuracy and, and kind of transparency of the state is like super important for this. And again, it doesn't only inform your sanctions compliance, it's also super important for your ongoing AML, for fraud and just overall risk and knowing you know, where your customer is coming from.
0: That, that is a great, awesome answer. I think this show is at its best when we can give that level of sort of like granular guidance to folks who are in this space. This The chat is blowing up probably more than I've ever seen it. Um, and what's so cool is like when there are actually people who are experts On here, who are answering some of these questions, who are putting some really great comments, Crystal. Like, thank you for all that you're saying in here. Um, But I am getting like a little bit of like a dude tornado cash uh, vibe from from the chat here. So uh, let's delve into this a little bit, Dallas. Uh, Would you talk a little bit about? And I can sort of, you know, we can we can dig into some of the FAQs. But really, can you talk a little bit about the way OFAC is thinking about tornado cash? you know, feel free to talk sort of the, at the designation stage, but also sort of now post-designation, sort of how how you're ultimately thinking about this, the action and then the space generally.
1: Yeah, and, um, you know, as you may be aware, there there's some litigation related to tornado cash. So I'm a bit limited on what I can say here, but I can give a little bit of context um, as well and go into the FAQs. I think, first of all, it's important to put this action in context, Um, you know, between 2019 and um, the date that tornado cash was sanctioned on August 8, 2022, um, the the mixer mixed and laundered about $1.3 billion in virtual currency um, from specially designated nationals, um, blocked persons, scams, thefts, and other illicit activities. And from OFAC's perspective, this designation reduces the um, critical nodes in the virtual currency ecosystem that support and facilitate illicit activities, as well as promotes AML, CFT, and sanctions compliance within the virtual currency industry. Um, in any event, we recognize that it raised certain compliance questions. And so We issued a series of FAQs to provide additional guidance to the compliance community. Um, The FAQs address specifically what's prohibited as a result of our designation. Um, For example, engaging in transactions with tornado cash, as well as what's not prohibited, um, which includes um, copying and making the source code available online. That's not part of our prohibition. Um, The FAQs also cover OFAC reporting obligations that apply to um, dusting transactions, um, as well as instructions on how to apply for a specific license for persons who may seek to engage in a transaction that's otherwise prohibited by um, the Dornado cash designation. Um, I will say also that OFAC, um, as demonstrated by these FAQs that we put out, um, we will provide additional um, industrial guidance related to the action, um, as needed going forward.
0: Thank thank you so much for that. Um, look, I think that, you know, there's a question in the chat, but it was also frankly something I was going to ask and Eric, I think you'd be great to weigh in on this. Um, so, you know, OFAC essentially says in the FAQs that it would not prioritize sort of victims of dusting attacks, right. For enforcement actions, right. These people are essentially victims of, of, of being uh, sent funds from a sanctioned entity. Um, but the reality is, you know, OFAC certainly d- does not say uh, this is not a violation. Yeah. Uh, it says, essentially says it's, it's a violation, but we're not going to prioritize it. So really with, where that leaves businesses is, hey, what should we do with these addresses? And the dusting thing, you know, that, that may be relatively easy, but it, it gets a little harder when you're talking about sort of, hey, you know, even just those who have had de minimis transactions with, tornado cash or so maybe would you talk a little bit how you're thinking how because I know this comes up all the time with the projects you're working with how what is your recommendation uh it, to, you know there's the, the, the most most reasonable recommendation that you could give right that you know not the easy no don't transact kind of answer
3: yeah um it's a great question um and I think there is a level here of frankly good enough and justifiable um, that is the answer that I usually give as to what steps you're taking, which as a former treasury person, I'm sure you feel this way, Ari, and, and Dallas, you probably feel this way now. It's sort of like, no, and Isabel, you too. It's, you know, no, we're on a, an anti-financial crime mission. Like we don't want any, you know, violations or, or, or illicit funds to, to flow to, you know, where, where they shouldn't. But at the same time, it's also a situation where, you know, you're really getting to sort of um, – Uh, end of of the utility curve when it comes to implementing incredibly complex compliance systems and refusing to do any types of transactions with, for example, you know, a wallet that touched tornado cash, you know, quite some time ago. And the biggest challenge that to your point Eric, that many of my clients have, and I'm sure many on this call uh, in terms of, you know, lawyers who who are listening have is figuring out just what is that kind of line that you can draw to say, listen, you know, there have been some touch points. They were, again, using the hops example, just for ease, you know, I kind of disagree with it. It was four or five hops, you know, away from tornado cash Therefore, it's it's okay. Um, and so the answer that I usually give at a high level is, you know, is, it, is the system that you have in place good enough to say, hey, we identified potential sanctions exposure, but then B, also we took a deep look at it and documented the reason that we thought it wasn't, for example, a violation. And I know that's not a great specific answer to what to do in the context of tornado cash, but that actually is the answer that I usually give to my clients, both in the context of tornado cash, but also in the context where, for example, and I'm I'm echoing Caleb's question, I think from the chat, where you see a situation where you're using very sophisticated tools and you identify very indirect exposure to a sanctioned person. It's sort of like, well, what do I do in that situation? And in my mind, what you do in that situation is program in place. you second off document the decision that you're taking that is reasonable. And then you third off, you know, write a memo to file essentially saying, okay, this is what we decided to do. Here's why we decided to do it. And I don't want to put words in OFAC's mouth, but I've heard dozens of times, you know, Brad Smith and Andrea and Lawrence and everybody come out and say, listen, you know, we're unlikely to pursue enforcement actions or any type of public enforcement activity, which you took a reasonable approach. You have a robust compliance program that's risk-based. And at the end of the day, we disagree with where you came down. That's very, in my mind, unlikely. So that's a long way of saying, I really think, you know, there is a level that is good enough here um, that doesn't make you lose your business, essentially.
0: I have a couple of thoughts on this too. Dallas, but I see you shaking your head. You want to weigh in a little bit? I hope Dallas agrees with me as the uh, city yeah. officer. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, I mean, <clears throat> I think what Eric you kind of speak to is we do have, number one, we have a strict liability regime, right? Under sanctions, which prohibit all transactions involving sanctioned persons. But at the same time, we have our enforcement guidelines as well. Um, and the enforcement guidelines look at a number of factors um, in determining a final disposition of a case um, and some of those mitigating factors are things you just mentioned, like, did you have a risk-based compliance program that, um, that was based on your particular industry and your portfolio of products, your geographic location, et cetera? Um, and so that would go into that decision-making,
0: of course. T- terrific. Really helpful. And just to add to, I think, what Eric described in, you know, in the wake of Tornado Cash, I, we talked about this a lot. Um, there's a TRM talks entirely dedicated to it, which I would encourage folks to look at. And then um, I spoke to Laura Shin for about 45 minutes just on this, how you do compliance for DeFi in the wake of tornado cash. It was, it's probably some, uh, so, so so I won't sort of really delve into it other than to say um, what we are doing at TRM is we are providing the most granular data possible to businesses or to DeFi protocol front ends of DeFi protocols to help them make t- the decision that Eric just described. And I think, you know, there, is, there, are, there are some businesses out there that have decided we're going to screen against the SDN list, which means we're going to block any address that's on there because that's abs- the minimal sanctions compliance, right? Um, uh, but, and there are others that say, hey, we're going to block all addresses that have any of that sort of indirect exposure because that's the most conservative approach, right? Uh, but you've seen really most sort of fall in the middle, And that is sort of taking the data that we have, you know, is this an inflow or is this outflow? Is this a significant amount or is it a de minimis amount? Um, What is the date and the timestamp of the transaction, right? Try to really understand sort of so they can then, whatever their risk appetite is, sort of take the appropriate action. And I think ultimately that's where sort of the best compliance takes place. But it's I think it's it's. One thing we've definitely seen is this is very much a work in progress. And I think from the crypto industry perspective, like the folks that we're working with are really trying to get this right. Um, But, you know, you also need to build out compliance infrastructure. And that is costly. And it's we're really in this interesting place right now where um, I think we're seeing it built out. But, you know, we're still such early days for this industry. Eric, you look like you want to weigh in on that. (laughs) Yeah, I do. And I don't, again, I don't want to
3: put words in OFAC's mouth, but, you know, to a certain extent, the enforcement actions you've seen against crypto companies, I won't say they've been egregious, although there are facts that suggest they are in the enforcement actions themselves, right, of course. But, you know, they've been situations where they have information, they have IP addresses, and they're just not screening. Or in the case of Bitrix, as the enforcement action says, basically no OFAC compliance program for two years, right? That's a far cry, at least in my experience, from many of our clients now, who really are trying to figure out, you know, Eric, what what's our risk appetite? What should we be doing? How should we be, you know, triangulating this? But it's not a question of you know no program at all, or just a program that has serious deficiencies. And to Dallas's point, that's you know really kind of the the distinguishing mark between what would be a public enforcement action versus simply, a, okay, maybe go back and make some adjustments.
0: And, and I'm going to make a statement here that Dallas feel free to weigh in or or not, quite frankly, and Eric or, or Isabel as well. I think, look, I mean, these actions, really all of them, those bit actions, as I, as I said, were from 2016, 2017, 2018. And I do think we've seen a maturity sort of in the space around compliance, particularly sanctions compliance, where people understand sort of the strict liability nature of it. Um, so yeah, you may have had a violation. So that's sort of in defense of these companies. We're not talking about th- them do it today uh, having no sanctions compliance, having no AML. We're talking about that something several years ago, which is even earlier days in this space. Um, so, so yeah. Uh, Dallas, there's a question in the chat I would love you to weigh in on because I know you guys give this a lot of thought. And that is what we hear all the time from regulators, AML and sanctions, but really obviously more the AML space. And that is um, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And that is sort of like, you know, you can be MAS in Singapore or VARA in Dubai or FinCEN or OFAC, um, but you're only as strong as sort of those those jurisdictions that have weak controls. Um, do you, do, does OFAC work with international partners, you know, having been a Treasury, I know TFFC, which is sort of the policy shop within TFI, the, the Terrorism and Financial Intelligence, engages with partners through FATF, through sort of other entities. How are you guys thinking about that kind of engagement internationally?
1: Uh, it's a huge uh, priority of OFAC, and I think that the perfect example of the sort of international cooperation that we've developed um, is really personified by our recent actions on Russia, we had, we had extreme coordination with the EU, with the UK um, to bring very similar actions that were unprecedented, um, particularly um, with respect to the, the volume and the breadth of the sanctions. So it's it is definitely something we work on um, and are focused on at OFAC.
0: It's a really great answer, and I actually wasn't like that. The Russia context is amazing. Having been at Treasury at TFI for a number of years, quite frankly, there were some OFAC actions that the world didn't necessarily get behind. That there was some controversy with with partners. What's really been extraordinary to see in the in the Russia context is the way the world has sort of come together around ensuring that there's enforcement, but also sort of mirroring the actions. Right? Uh, you know, we've seen more sanctions out of other countries than we typically see in the space. Um, Guys, I can't, kind of can't believe the time is gone. Um, uh, I, I really want to continue this conversation. I feel like we're talking sanctions broadly. This could have been just Tornado Cash, just Russia, just geolocation. Um, in, in terms of sort of a lightning round, Isabella, I'm going to start with you. You know, uh, I'd say one thing, certainly at TRM, and I know at GeoComply, it's like you, you just got to keep iterating and you got to keep improving these tools because bad actors will continue to figure out ways to uh, work around them. What, what is sort of next? Like when you're looking at the future of this space, what is your focus?
2: I mean, when, when it comes to kind of like, and I can really speak to the jurisdictional aspect of it, right? Like where someone is. And, and we have seen this, you know, GeoComply has been around for more than 10 years. And we've essentially specialized in knowing where someone is and like location fraud, right? What are all the innovative tools? People get very creative with hiding where they're coming from and as we know cyber criminals are very very creative and innovative so staying one step ahead so for us it's really continuously looking for these risks that that are out there monitoring uh for these different kinds of tools that that inevitably originate um and i mean for, for me as well i think for crypto more specifically I think for us, a big role to play more is like on the on-ramps, right? I think that's a part where there's a higher risk. You know, once it's on the blockchain, you have tools like yours um, that are really tracking this really well um, and have so many insights, which is amazing. But between that point, safeguarding those on-ramps and making sure that you, where you can do all this very robust KYC and ongoing compliance and transaction monitoring is so, so important
0: thank you so much for that um Eric what should we be really thinking about sort of as we're as we're going forward in the space yeah thanks Eric
3: I, I'm actually the thing that's most interesting to me in addition to obviously the you know new products and services that are being developed and that are very innovative and that all present or most present sections compliance challenges um, I know i mentioned this earlier but I really think thinking about how traditional financial institutions are going to be incorporating crypto into their practices, onboarding crypto clients. Like they've got, I won't say a lot of work to do, but it's gonna be really challenging at times for them to do so. And I think that a lot more of them in the near future are going to be trying to do so, right? You've begun to see over the last couple of years, certain traditional financial institutions sort of dipping their toes in. And that's a far cry from four or five years ago when everyone's saying, you know, wash my hands of that, no interest in it. I mean, I saw, I guess it was yesterday that uh, I guess JP Morgan did uh, did, did some type of uh, trade that was that was publicly reported. Um, and we've seen you know other other institutions do it as well. Um, and so seeing where they go with it and how they're incorporating that into their sanctions compliance programs, I think it's going to be really fascinating to watch. So I'm excited for that.
0: Awesome. Uh, D- Dallas, uh, look, you, you 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 have 600 of your closest friends from the crypto industry on the line here. Uh, what uh what if, if, if you could sort of tell folks anything in terms of from OFAC uh, today, what, what would sort of be the message?
1: Yeah, so I, I would say that, you know, virtual currency enforcement and targeting remains a very important focus of Treasury and OFAC at large. Um, our goal is not to hinder the development of new technologies, but encourage the responsible development that implements compliance controls, AML, CFT, et cetera. I think going forward, there's a lot of uh, potential in this industry, but at the same time, there's challenges. And some of the challenges that, you know, are, are somewhat difficult to, to deal with and you have to kind of get creative is the rise of anonymizing technology, um, you know, use of mixers on hosted wallets that can obfuscate the origin of crypto transactions. And then the rise of dis- to intermediation. Um, we have, you know, less um, intermediates in the in the tr- chains of react of transactions that are happening, um, and more peer-to-peer transactions as well. So that brings new compliance challenges that really have to be um, looked at and and find risk-based solutions to deal with. Um, you know, I would say that Treasury remains focused on using really our vast array of tools that we have. Um, counteract illicit financing risks in this area, and that includes um, sanctioning actors that are uh, laundering um, illicit funds, as well as bringing enforcement actions um, against persons that that violate our sanctions using virtual currency. Um, And lastly, I think one thing that's important from us and one part of our approach is also continuing to do talks like this and engaging with the industry at large so that um, we can better understand the risks and challenges in this area. Th-
0: th- thank you so much. I mean, that was an awesome answer, particularly around dis- intermediation, right? I mean, I feel like today we've, you know, figured out how to regulate in the crypto space still using sort of intermediaries. And as we move outside of that world, and I think Tornado Cash was very illustrative of, you know, how we could be thinking about it. And if nothing else, it really has caused a Really important conversation between industry and um, and regulators that I think hopefully is is for this, th- hopefully this is an example of. So so thank you for, for saying that as well. We have a super sophisticated audience, and some of the questions I think are just spot on. Uh, but really, I think if anything else, and you know, speaking for folks for a moment, I think that you know uh, guidance is just so important. You know, there's a question in here about lookbacks. How far should we be required to look back um, when filing a SAR? I know a SAR is not your world, Dallas, but it's the same kind of thing that we should be worried about. Uh, sort of an enforcement action. I think the reality is that guidance from FinCEN, guidance from OFAC around these types of more thorny issues is something that definitely folks are are are, are thirsty for, or hungry for within the crypto industry. So, um, with, with with saying all of that, I just really more than anything else want to say, you know, thank you so much for coming on. Particularly Dallas, like it is so important for the industry to engage directly with regulators, and it is really fantastic for, to have to have you on here um isabella eric you guys are true subject matter experts and really really grateful for you to, to have come on today so so thank you all so much for, for joining trm talks um to, to our audience thank you for the awesome questions uh great as always uh you know sign up for the weekly roundup follow us on social media um but really sort of tune into more of this we have a lot more trm talks Uh, coming up uh, between now and the end of the year and excited to have you uh, join us so so thank you all for joining us thank you all for helping us build a safer financial system and uh and have a great day everybody